0: Well, it is a pleasure to be here with you uh, this afternoon, and again, the John Bunyan Conference uh, for this year. Uh, just so you know, and I think we should be very honest, and periodically it's a good thing to do uh, as believers. Uh, I know for sure that this is going to be difficult for you, uh, because it's one o'clock, we had a great lunch, everyone's tired, so I will give you permission, to get up, go get a coffee, Nod off, go to sleep, do whatever you want, provided you leave saying good things about the session. Okay, that's all That's all I really care about, as long as we can do that. Because I have to go uh, back to Canada and report to my wife as to what I did on our 13th wedding anniversary, which is today. And I'm... S- Is she watching? No, she's had enough of listening to me. She will not be watching for sure. Uh, So I I figured it's our 13th anniversary. That sounds like a very lucky number. And so it's going to be my opportunity to come down. I said, I get a chance to listen to Blake White. I can't turn that down. I'm sure you understand. And she was fairly upset until she saw that tonight there's going to be a session that's going to teach me how to love her. And so she sent me down and said, go right on down, you know, just come back, make sure you paid attention uh, to what's, what's been said. It's also, uh, when we got married, we graduated uh, from university, got married two weeks after our last exam, and then had our honeymoon, and came back and began full-time uh, ministry, Fairview Baptist Church is working with uh, Les as his assistant. And so this also, this month also marks the th- 13th anniversary uh, of me being in full-time vocational ministry. And I also turn 35 in a couple weeks. So I'm going through a sort of a, a one-third life crisis. You know, I assume that all of my best years are, are vanishing behind me, and I need to take stock. I need to assess you know, what is it you know, that I'm doing as a husband? You know, what is it that I'm doing as a father? Uh, what is it that I'm doing uh, in ministry? And one of the things that the Lord has been really sort of working in me about is this idea of what it means to be a shepherd. What do we do as people who are called to shepherd the church of God? Or even, what do we do? How do we appreciate, how do we understand what it's like just to be part of the flock of God? we are the sheep of his hand, the sheep of his pasture, and one of the great things, of course, is that no matter who our pastor is in the local church, Jesus Christ is our shepherd, and so to think about how does that intersect, where's the intersection or the connection between being a shepherd, but also being a sheep, how do we start to sort that out? So one of the things that I want to do in, in the two sessions today, then Lord willing, then one on Wednesday morning, is I want to just spend a little bit of time reflecting and meditating and unpacking uh, the shepherd imagery in Scripture. Uh, It's used in a wide variety of ways, employed for a wide variety of purposes. And so the first session I want us to look at just the Lord who is our shepherd. In the Old Covenant Scriptures, God, Yahweh, reveals himself as the shepherd of his people. This, of course, is picked up Uh, and fulfilled in Jesus Christ, the Good Shepherd, uh, in the New Covenant. And then we'll also see that in in a similar way to the fact that Yahweh appointed human shepherds to lead and minister to His people in the Old Covenant context, the Lord Jesus Christ by His Spirit also appoints human under-shepherds to minister in the New Covenant flock, uh, the Church of Jesus Christ. And so I want us to look at how this... Imagery is used of the Lord, how it's used in the new covenant of Jesus Christ, and then try to work out some implications for how that metaphor is deployed and used for human under-shepherds and pastors, elders in the church. And so we'll look at that, Lord willing, on Wednesday. Now, I do recognize, again, that it is a difficult time in the day And I recognize as well that I'm an extraordinarily stimulating speaker, Uh, but nonetheless, I think I'm going to sort of shade a little bit away from lecture, especially when we get to some of the passages, and I'm going to shade a little bit more into preaching. Uh, if that's okay. I, I anticipate that tomorrow, by the grace of God, is going to be a wonderful day of learning and learning truths that help us understand the Bible and help us worship the Lord. Uh, I think it's going to be intellectually rigorous. I'm excited for that. Uh, I think today I'm going to give you a little bit of a break in terms of uh, the rigor and the understanding. We're just going to be walking through some well-worn paths, reflecting on some very familiar texts and very familiar things. I trust that the Lord will open our hearts, apply them to help us see His care for us and to rejoice in what and how He relates to us. Before turning to some passages, though, I just want to make a few. Uh, comments about the nature of analogies. Uh, We know, of course, that the shepherd imagery, when applied to God, is not to be literalized. Uh, He is not literally a shepherd. We are not literally sheep. And so we're working from a metaphor. We're working from an image. And one of the things that we need to understand is that when it comes to the interpretation and the application of metaphors or similes or figures or Analogies, there's a sense in which analogies are the easiest way to learn about anything. Uh, Analogies are very often intuitive. Uh, In fact, when we start to teach children from the very earliest ages, we begin to teach children uh, by analogy. We're always trying to draw comparisons. We're always trying to say to children, listen, this context here, It's not identical to this context over here. But but do you see how these things are similar? Do you see how the principle here, cause and effect, you're trying to get them to understand causal relations? Do you see how there's cause and effect here? Well, in the same way, there's going to be cause and effect here. And you're always trying to get them to draw points of comparison and points of contact. You're getting them to reason analogically. You're getting them to think in terms of comparisons and likenesses. That's how children begin to learn. So we find, as we grow and as we continue to learn that the easiest way often to understand abstract concepts is through reasoning by analogy. Uh, We're illustrating, we're bringing in pictures, trying to show how things are, in fact, similar. One of the difficulties with this, though, is precisely because reasoning by analogy is so intuitive to us, we can often shade a little bit of the difficulty. That is, analogies only function because there are relevant similarities and dissimilarities between the things that you're comparing. In other words, you can't compare the same thing with the same thing. You learn nothing about God if you say, God is like God. You learn nothing about a car if you say a car is like a car. Right? You can't compare things that are identical and learn anything about them. So every analogy you use will have a relevant, hopefully, a relevant point of similarity, but there will also be points of dissimilarity. The difficulty comes, and this happens all the time, when people working through an analogy actually think the connection is with a point of dissimilarity rather than with a point of similarity. For example, if you want to learn critical thinking, if you, if you want to learn uh, how, to, how to reason, if you want to learn the principles of logic and rationality, uh, particularly with things like you know informal logical fallacies, the best thing to do is to read books by Richard Dawkins and Sam Harris. You know, they are just full of logical mistakes, logical fallacies. And, and one of the, the best ones, uh, in terms of analogies, is, is you know, the fallacy of the false analogy, where these guys, these new atheists, will come along and they'll say, listen, you know, believing in Jesus Christ, having faith in God, it, it, it's just like believing in the tooth fairy. You know, this, this is one of the analogies they're using all the time, It's just like believing in the tooth fairy. It's, it's just like believing in unicorns. You know, and they'll say, there's no evidence for tooth fairies, you know, there's no evidence for unicorns, there's no evidence for Jesus. Well, okay, that, that, well that's very interesting. So, so, so yeah, that's the analogy that you're working with. Well, your, your point of similarity, the, the point of contact you're trying to draw, is on the basis of lack of evidence. No evidence for unicorns, no evidence for, fairy to, or, or, for the tooth fairy... No evidence for Jesus. But when you start to actually cash out the analogy, how similar are those things? Well, it doesn't seem like they're really similar at all, except that they're both used by the new atheists. You know, that's the only point of contact you can find. Right? When you start to look you know, a little bit more closely, you say, well, that's very interesting. Because there are historical documents that talk about Jesus Christ purporting to report sober history, there are, are no historical records. You know, talking about you know, the activity of the Tooth Fairy. You know, the origins of belief in, tooth, in the Tooth Fairy you know, is generated as a, as a benevolent lie, as many things that i tell my children are you know it's just it's a benevolent lie you know trying to excite them trying to give them something to look forward to trying to make them not hate dentists you know we want them to have good oral care you know we want them to think there's a payoff for for taking care of their teeth and and so you, you're trying to help them you're trying to give them something but you know perfectly well that there isn't a scrap of historical foundation in this you're not making some sort of you know metaphysical claim about you know who actually belongs in the catalog of real beings in the universe you're not saying anything like that at all. But it's entirely different when it comes to the claims about Jesus Christ. How many people today are gathering to worship the tooth fairy? How many people have had their lives absolutely changed by putting their faith in the tooth fairy? How many people will testify to being empowered to break addictions of all kinds in their lives because of the tooth fairy. How many people reasonably well adjusted, educated come to believe in the tooth fairy as adults who didn't believe in the tooth fairy as children? Well, there isn't a single one. There isn't a single person in all of the world who didn't believe, who was sort of an a tooth fairyist, you know, as a child and as a teenager, who then later came to put their faith in the tooth fairy. Not a single one. But how many people, as teenagers, as university students, as adults, have come to put their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ? And you're just, you're comparing, sort of another analogy, apples and oranges. It's just absolutely not the same thing. And so one of the things that we need to be very careful about when we start using analogies, is we have to make sure the analogy is actually analogous. You know, it has to actually function. It needs to work. So, when we come then to analogies about God, or pictures about God, we need to be aware of the fact that we are prone to misapply images. We need to work very carefully to make sure that we are allowing the Bible itself to interpret for us how the metaphor functions, or it's quite possible that we will draw the wrong implications from the imagery. In fact, just to sort of show you a little bit about where I'll be going, and I'll make an argument, I'm just going to assert it now, I'll make an argument later about this, is that I worry That in a lot of our churches, not least in broadest-based reform churches, that there are some elements of the shepherd imagery, particularly in relationship to a shepherd and sheep, that pastors and elders are using in their churches to dominate and to really, in my judgment, sort of write off everyone else as not having virtually anything worth contributing to them. And so I'm going to argue that I think that the shepherd imagery, particularly shepherds compared to sheep, has been abused in a lot of our churches to allow pastors and elders to dominate the people of God in a way which I think is completely out of step with how the shepherd imagery is actually used of pastors and the responsibility for care and for feeding of their flock that they are supposed to have. But that's for another time. Another thing, of course, to remember is that different analogies have different functions in different cultures. In the ancient Near East, uh, we know that the shepherd imagery was used all the time of kings or deities. It was a title for you know, religious rulers or religious leaders or authority figures. It was a title used for generals. And so today, of course, in our culture, you know, we don't refer to you know, our, our presidents or our prime ministers as shepherds. It's just not part of the title of a that they take upon themselves. You know, we have, you know, you have here in the United States, you know, your, your commander-in-chief. You know, in the ancient Near East, you might have a shepherd-in-chief. You know, A very different way of looking at it. So the shepherding imagery there is bound up with power and authority and strength and might and rule. In our culture, particularly in evangelicalism, even when we think of God as the shepherd, it's very, very rare that anyone connects God as our shepherd with God being a king or a ruler, or an authority. In fact, almost all of the acts, and it seems to me, in our in our Western evangelical churches, uh, when it comes to God being a shepherd, is that God exists to give us an ideal-type life. Now, I want to argue, and, and will in a little bit, that Psalm 23 does give us a, an, idyllic, an idyllic picture of God's care and provision for his people, But on the other hand, what I want to insist on is that we must not define an idyllic existence on the basis of the American dream. I think you can take that imagery of of being led by God and fed by God and nourished by God and protected by God. And unless you're very, very careful, you can sort of come out believing that God as our shepherd, if we're just being faithful to him, that God as our shepherd is in the business of blessing us with health and wealth and prosperity and giving us all the desires of our heart. and He exists just to take care of us in every possible way. I don't think that's exactly what Psalm 23 is saying. So we have to be very careful that we don't make God being our shepherd, the equivalent of God is the shepherd of the American dream. Prosperity, wealth, comfort, material blessings, all the ways that our culture is going to interpret being blessed by God. So so we need to always be stepping back, always reevaluating. How is the Bible using the image? What would it have meant to the original readers? Not just how do we naturally pick it up and use it uh, today. Another thing, last thing I'll, I'll say about sort of metaphors and images is that they're often multifaceted or multi- or polyvalent. It just means that you know, there are different aspects, different facets of the, of the imagery uh, or metaphor or simile that have multiple meanings in different contexts. So one image, like the image of a shepherd, and I think this is essential when it comes to applying the image to pastors, one image, one facet of a metaphor, can apply in some contexts but not apply in others. In other words, because one image can communicate multi, a sort of a multiplicity of different things, you can't just say, "The image was used here." And meant these five things, and the image is used here, so it must mean those same five things here. In a sense, this is the same sort of problem you get with uh, you know, word studies and uh, sometimes called illegitimate totality transfer. You, know, you take the whole semantic range of a word and you dump it into every single context. Right? Words have particular meanings in particular contexts. And words don't mean everything that one word can mean in the whole semantic range of the vocabulary. So you have to be very careful. What is the image being used for here? What is the point here? Not what does it mean everywhere in Scripture. What does it mean here? have to be very, very careful. Or else we'll start applying legitimate aspects of the image... But in illegitimate contexts, which can cause tremendous havoc in our practice. Just for one example, in the book of Hosea, God is imaged as a lion. In the New Testament, Christ is the lion of the tribe of Judah. But in Peter's epistles, Satan is a lion, a roaring lion, seeking those who may devour And so it's pretty clear, I trust that you understand this, that when God is being referred to as a lion and Christ is being referred to as a lion and Satan is being referred to as a lion, it's not saying that that Satan and Christ and and God are all sort of identical in 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 identical ways, right? You have to see what is being said in the context. How does this apply to Satan in a way which it does and does not apply to God and to Jesus Christ? Tonight, we're going to hear, uh, Lord willing, about loving our wives as Christ uh, loved the church. And although this would be far too far afield for me to to get into, one of the things that troubles me, and I'll I'll say that to give a label to it, um, I'm complementarian of the same kind. Uh, And you have to look at, the headship language. However, you want your, your your word says, and figure figure out whatever you know, head means, you know, and off you go and, and do that, and, and more power to you. But you can't possibly, possibly think that the husband is the head of the wife in an identical way that Christ is the head of the church. You, you just can't possibly think that that everything that's bound up with headship with Jesus and the church somehow applies to husbands and wives. It should be just absolutely as clear as crystal that there are things true of the headship of Jesus Christ over the church that are not true of husbands with their wives. In fact, it should be clear, too, in that Ephesians passage, that headship gets cashed out, because Paul could have said anything that he wanted, right, in terms of, What it means to be the the head of the wife. You know, he does not say, you know, the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church. So, husbands, make sure you rule over your wives. Love your wives. Give yourself up for your wife. Die for her holiness. And so, if the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, the way the imagery is actually worked out by Paul, the accent is in no way on. So you sit back and issue decrees from the throne that your wife then has to unquestioningly put into practice immediately. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) It's love your wife. Serve her. Give yourself for her care for her, invest in her holiness. That's how Christ works and functions as our head. Now, at that point, you say, well, there's there's a lot more that Christ does than that. Absolutely. But I want to suggest that there are facets of that imagery which applies to Jesus that just does not apply to a husband in his relationship with his wife. Again, I have a similar concern with pastors and elders in some circles taking the shepherd imagery and all that it means when it's applied to God and Christ and other contexts and then sort of arrogating to themselves every single possible facet of the metaphor over and against their people. Now, there's something else uh, that could be said in all very quickly. You know, there's something that's actually interesting when it comes to looking at the analogies uh, in Scripture. Of course, the analogies are really the pictures, right? And, and I think that you could make a very, very good case that all language is sort of inherently bound up with being signs and therefore analogies. Right? And, and so if language, by its very nature, is sort of an analogical medium, and an analogy is a picture. Uh, then you're describing these verbal pictures. You really have a, a sort of an analogy being communicated by a medium that is inherently analogical in its nature. So it's, it's analogy communicated by analogy. And, and then not, and then beyond that, one more step is, is that all language applied to God is applied analogically to God you know there is a big debate right about how how can we say anything meaningful about god well uh, some people want to say well we can't you know god is so transcendent that every word that we use to describe him is equivocal in its nature just meaning uh, that when we talk about god being one way and we talk about people being another way it, it just com- completely means different things so god is wise and and some human beings are wise, uh, but the wisdom of God, we have no idea what that's like compared to human wisdom, which is the wor- same word, two totally different realities and meanings, so we really can't understand anything about God. And other people want to say, no, 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 that's obviously not the case. God is a speaking God. He's communicated. Um, but the words have the exact same meaning. They're univocal. They're not equivocal. They're univocal. And so whenever we use words of human beings and words of God, you know, those, that same linguistic family, it means identical things. Then this seems to make God too imminent. You, you sort of lose the transcendence of God here. And other people, I think, rightly have said, no, all of our language about God is analogical. That is, there's a sense in which the wisdom of God is categorically different than the wisdom of human beings. So we're not saying exactly the same thing when we say that God is wise and, and Solomon is wise. There is, a, there is a qualitative difference. There's a categorical difference. But nonetheless, to say that God is wise communicates truth about God. So let's say that this sort of split it up, it's not equivocal, it doesn't mean two totally different things, it's not univocal, it's analogical. And, and so in that sense, and theologically, we want to say that when we're working through an analogy about God, we're working through an analogy about God in a medium, language, that's sort of inherently analogical, recognizing that all language, when applied to God, is analogical. Uh, so in other words, you, you sort of have an analogy in an analogy analogically applied to God or a picture of a picture of a picture of God, right? And so when you start to think about what God is like through these pictures of of him being a shepherd, him being a rock, all these different images, you're really you're getting the, the whisperings of his glory, the 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 outer fringes of his character and his nature. And because of that, again, we want to work through these analogies and metaphors and images very, very carefully. Because in the end, how we understand these pictures of pictures of God is going to affect how we serve in the church. It's going to affect how we interact with each other. It's going to affect how we worship the Lord. It's going, to understand how we understand his, it's going to affect how we understand his nature, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So we just want to make sure uh, that we are doing our very, very best before God to hear what he has to say about himself through these revelatory pictures. I'm going to read now, shifting a little bit. You don't need to turn there. You, you know these words. We're going to read Psalm 23, but I'm going to read it in in the NIV 2011 uh, translation, partly because I I like, I tend to like on balance this translation, but also because Psalm 23 is a psalm that we know culturally, but not through our own biblical study. And, And the reason that I say that is because I know all kinds of people, myself included, who when it comes to Psalm 23, say, can you quote Psalm 23? And, And sure, at least I get the first verse, you know, and it comes out in King James language. But I don't read the King James. So somehow I learned Psalm 23, but not through my own Bible study. somehow I learned it, you know, in the language of a translation that I don't even read. So there's some sort of cultural, you know, impetus here that, that controls our reading. And then, just like with the Lord's Prayer, it's easy to go on autopilot. And the familiarity of the cadence and the words obscures what the text is actually saying. So Psalm 23 says this, The Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He refreshes my soul. He guides me along the right paths for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the darkest valley, I will fear no evil. For you As I said before I read the passage, I have never read... Well, that's not true. I have read the psalm in the King James Version. But I haven't learned the psalm through reading the King James Version. But I still identify the psalm with the vocabulary of the King James. Why is it that Psalm 23 is so embedded in our culture? I mean, that's a question that we need to ask. You know, If we're not learning Psalm 23 through our own study and identification of its importance, you know, one of the things that we have to ask ourselves is, why is it uh, that it's one of the very few passages which actually still to this day has fairly wide distribution in our society? Uh, I would suggest that it's actually probably and I don't know if this is statistically true, uh, but I would suggest that it probably has something to do with the fact that it's it's often read at funerals. right? And so it's deployed in the same way that John 14 is known because it's often read at funerals. And I think it's used at funerals because of the reference to walking through the valley of the shadow of death. Although I, in my understanding, and this is one of the, the very bizarre things about, about speaking here, uh, this is very good for your humility, right? Um, usually, when I'm when I'm preaching in in the church where I am, there's a sense in which you know th- there are people there who know more than I do about all sorts of things, and but I tend to think that they're not likely going to be up on enough biblical studies to to say, Steve, that was just completely wrong. You know, you're completely wrong in every way. Um, but but then today, you know, I'm up here and and. Dr. Peter Gentry is here, and, and he's one of the world's leading scholars in the Old Testament. And and so I'm going to say a few things about Hebrew and translation, and and then I just think better of it. And I'm not, you know? Uh, it's, it's not going to happen. Um, so, so my understanding is that some people, presumably those who help translate this in the NIV, think that the valley of the shadow of death, again, Sort of a metaphor. It's an image for the darkest, most difficult experiences of life. That is, it's not an image of, it's an image of death, but it's not the death experience. Which is the way it's often, which is the way it's often been taken from the King James. It's, it's the way you pass through death. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. So it's, that's why you get it in these funeral contexts. When it's actually designed to show you that the Lord is with you, in the darkest, deepest moments of your life, even when you're walking through those most difficult things in your life, you don't need to fear any evil because the Lord is with you. He comforts you. He's there for you. And I think if you were to look at this psalm, removing it from that funeral context, it still resonates very, very deeply because from sort of a sheep's eye perspective, these are all of your archetypical needs being met. You know, you don't need to worry about anything. You really will lack nothing. You, you really will not be in want. You know, because the Lord is your shepherd, and, and he gives you Peace and security, so you can lie down in abundance surrounded by, you know, the grass and the green pastures. He leads you beside quiet and still waters. He gives you all that you need, even when you're going through the most difficult experiences of your life. And I think actually in that, that, that transition alone, should be enough uh, to forever destroy the idea uh, that God, uh, that, that Yahweh as the shepherd, exists to bless you and give you whatever material comfort and prosperity and health that you want. Because you have this imagery, and both of these things are true. The Lord promises you, you won't lack anything. And the Lord promises you that he'll lead you beside quiet waters. And he promises you that he'll give you green pastures. You'll lie down in peace and safety. He'll refresh your soul. He'll lead you in the paths of righteousness. Or he'll lead you in the right paths for his name's sake. But that doesn't preclude going through the darkest valley, That doesn't mean that you won't go through the valley of the shadow of death. It doesn't mean that there won't be evil that you experience. It just means that when you experience that evil, you don't need to fear it. Because the Lord is with you. And so I think even a thoughtful reading of this psalm uh, would forever sort of blow up that idea uh, that the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Meaning, he's here to satisfy all of my wants. If I just have enough faith. If I just name it and claim it to you, sort of the, the older vocabulary, right? Uh, the Lord just exists to, uh, to give me perfectly combed hair you know, and shiny white teeth you know, and, and, a, and a radiant smile yeah, and, and all, the, all the things that I want. No, the Lord will lead you, the Lord will protect you, but for His name's sake, He will bless you with peace He will bless you with spiritual abundance and he will bless you with his presence when you go through very, very difficult and trying times. And Psalm 23 in no way precludes going through the darkest valley. In fact, it assumes it, that the Lord will demonstrate his care for us as his sheep, not by helping us avoid all trouble, but by giving us his presence through it, showing us how great he really is. And then the imagery is sort of dropped, and then you have just the human imagery in verses 5 and 6. And even in front of your enemies, which, of course, assumes you have enemies, right? In the presence of your enemies, you prepare a table for me. My cup, and this is where I have to default to the older language, cup runneth over. He doesn't just fill you up to sort of the maximum extent that you can contain. He fills you up to beyond what you can contain through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Not just grace, but superabounding grace. Not just a full cup, but a cup that overflows. A cup that he fills up so much that you can't contain all that he is and all that he has done for you. Surely your goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. This is a snapshot, just one picture, of what it means for the Lord to be our shepherd. That alone, at least to me, that sounds pretty good. And, and, and that's something that I can, I can read and I, I can say to, to my wife of, of 13 years, frankly, I am so glad that I am not your only shepherd. I am so glad that I am not the ultimate head. I am so glad that God himself is your shepherd. I am so glad that Jesus Christ himself is your head. I can say, very frankly, that if the buck really ultimately stopped with me, I would immediately go back to Guelph and resign as the pastor of the church. If it was all contingent on me, if I was the great shepherd, if everyone had to look to me to meet all of their needs, if everyone had to look to me to feed them, if everyone had to look to me, if it was all about me, and this is one of the things that just should be sort of transparently obvious, is that there is no human being who can do this. We are absolutely incapable of caring for people in a way that they absolutely need with their spiritual needs before God. It's only God who can satisfy them. It's only God who can take care of them. It's only God who, who can comfort them with his presence through their darkest time. And to come alongside of people and say, you know, at best, I'm just an analogy of his presence. I, I'm, I'm physically here with you in the hospital room, but, but the one who's really present with you through this time is God himself. And, and, and when I go back to the office, your shepherd is still here. When I go back to the office, when your family goes home for the night, the Lord is here with you during this time. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want one of the things that was true even in the Old Covenant is that these promises are also not just individualistic, not just sort of between myself and the Lord, but there's a corporate nature to the imagery as well that you find in Psalm 100. You don't need to turn there. You, you can if you want. You know, maybe that will be enough exercise to, to wake you up just for the last few minutes. You know, as have your Bibles, you can turn to Psalm 100. Just flip over to Psalm 100. And I want you to notice something because... This is a psalm, unlike Psalm 23, which doesn't develop this imagery at length, but the imagery is just naturally embedded in it. And and the greater context, I think, should give us a lens for how we are to respond to something like Psalm 23. The reality of the Lord being our shepherd, all that he does for us, all that he is. You read in Psalm 100, Shout for joy to the Lord, all the earth. generations. And you notice sort of right there in the middle, you have that shepherd sheep imagery. But the whole context is one of worshiping God. The whole context is one of praise. The whole context is of going together with the people of God into his presence, rejoicing and and being filled with thanksgiving, being filled with joy, praising his name, worshipping him. And it's natural for the psalmist to say, when I'm thinking about the people of God, you know, going in to sing his praises and to honor him, the image which just resonates with that is, we're just part of his flock. He's our shepherd. We belong to him. And I think that's actually a very, very compelling image. That God is not our shepherd just to give us all the things that we feel like he should give us. He is not our shepherd just to dispense to us the blessings that we want to receive. He is our shepherd providentially and sovereignly, always leading us in the right paths so that we respond with joy and praise together with the other sheep of the fold. We think about God as our shepherd. We think about ourselves as his sheep together with the other sheep of God. And I think Psalm 100 tells you that that when you're thinking about that, You just haven't understood it unless you have this response of praise. You have not understood, even in a fundamental sense, how the shepherd-sheep imagery works in Scripture if it does not bring you to long to go up with the people of God to praise His name with joy. Which, if you think about it then, is exactly the opposite response of coming to God as our shepherd, looking to get more stuff for us. It it is profoundly God-centered. And one of the things that, again, we need to work very, very difficult. It happens in all kinds of subtle ways. But the Lord does not exist to be our shepherd just to satisfy all of our felt needs. The Lord exists as our shepherd to lead us so that we praise him. In other words, the whole imagery and the whole reality that the imagery stands for is designed to get us to worship and praise God so that God receives the glory. In other words, if you think of it, God is our shepherd for the glory of his own name. And you just haven't got that until you find yourself thinking about God as the shepherd. In the end result, is that you're praising him. That he is the God of glory, he is the shepherd greatest thing is that you can know the lord is god he has made us not we ourselves all we are sheep of his hand sheep of his pasture and that alone is enough to inspire praise and worship with the people of god